Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right, you guys, before we get the show underway, keep in mind, still being supported, and big thanks to our friends over at Honey Stinger, currently offering free shipping on orders over 50 bucks if you go to the website. Go, go through packfiller.com before you go to the website, just because... I'm shallow and I need those types of things. Organic Strawberry Energy Chews, brand new, available right now. They have a whole bunch of events and things like that going on. Speaking of events, they have event sponsorship requests. If you have something and you want some product, those guys are really good about it. Big thanks to Honey Stinger. Also, got to thank our friends over at Noon. They are so busy right now bringing out all new products and things like that. Just in case you didn't know, it's Healthy Hydration, Electrolyte Enhanced Drink Tab. It's gluten-free dairy and soy free safe for clean sport and made from plant-based ingredients so there you go big thanks to noon big thanks to honey stinger let's do a podcast shall we Mellow time of summer. Are these the dog days? I never know. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Pack Filler Podcast. Whoa, the sun music just dripped out there. I'm trying to tone it down a little bit, bring the levels down, trying to keep a professional podcast going here. But as you can see, it's just it's just over. I didn't want to bother being gentle with my uh, with my volume levels here because I wanted to just get on with the whole show. Hey, everybody! Good to see you. Oh, good to hear from you again. Uh, speaking of good to hear from you, thanks for all the feedback in regards to the Tour de France. France shows that um, I somewhat put together on a dare, uh, but um, I've, I've heard from all you guys and saying that. You liked, well, some of you liked what you heard. Some of you thought some of it was a little weak. And I agree, some of it was a little weak, especially during those mid-week stages where the racing was about as exciting as watching paint dry. But I uh, appreciate that, you guys. Oh, here I am. Dog days of summer. I am, I've not been training at all, I have to tell you guys. I've been doing very little. I actually went out for a couple runs. I know, I know, right? And... Uh, Every time I run, I, I strain my calf, so it's like God is just telling me not to do it. Plus, on top of the fact that uh, I live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, and um, our air quality is so smoky right now, it is unhealthy for all age groups and all ability groups to go out into this stuff. So I'm using that as a pretty bona fide excuse not to go out and train. I did get a mountain bike race in a couple weeks ago, which was fun over in, in uh, beautiful North Idaho. If you're on the, if you follow the Instagram page, I got some shots up there that were absolutely beautiful up in North Idaho. Schweitzer Mountain Resort is the area, and we did a. Uh, they have a Sunday series that they put together, so we went up there, camped overnight at the resort, and then did the race the next day. Absolutely beautiful place beautiful terrain but absolutely brutal it was either up or down and when i'm saying up it was absolute brutal climbing and when i say down it was scare the shit out of any roadie and um it was a good time though 
I had a lot of fun. I got third. Yeah. Yeah. Podiumed. Who'd have thought, right? Big fat ass. Okay. What else? Oh, yeah. I did want to mention that uh, that that how I talk about being a bike hoarder did finally come around. I built up my kid's college bike. He actually wanted to take one of my old road frames, a Davidson Impulse frame. If you know Bill Davidson of Seattle area bike building fame, built a beautiful steel road frame for me back in the late 80s and uh, had a really funky paint job on it that this, this Tam Tech company did in san francisco very late 80s actually i'd say early 90s it kind of looks like a pink version of eddie van halen's guitar and he wanted to take that bike to college so i built it up and for those of you old folks out there it's got medolo brakes with the old cork pads yeah no really um it does have sti but it's got um uh, god what else does it have on it that's just ancient it's well it's it's got old old asos rims with bladed spokes it's uh i think it's a nine speed might be a little you know it's got sti so it's late 90s some a component on it but the brakes are absolute works of art and it is just a hilarious looking bike still uh chinelli titanium stem and all that kind of stuff but needless to say i i never realized that being that he is going to school in portland that we're probably going to have to buy the world's largest lock for that bike because there's so many people in portland who actually probably understand and appreciate what that bike is so uh if, i don't want to buy a lock that's heavier than the bike but if any of you guys have have lock recommendations throw them my way so anyway here we are thanks again as i said for the tour de france shows uh i, I heard from you guys saying that the paul main and george mount shows were the best ones i know what you're saying you like it when i have people on that aren't me i i, I take that as as god's honest truth and so i'm going to stick with it and um as promised i i went out there and made another promise about something that was coming and again i failed you all miserably I told you guys that Frank Strack from Velomonati.com fame was going to come on the podcast, but life got in the way. Frank and I have a long, I, you know, we've been chatting back and forth, been friends on the internet at least for, for several years. I've been able to ride with him a couple times. Uh, Frank's a really good guy and a really fun guest to have on the show. And so I kept pursuing it like a jilted lover and eventually got Frank to come on the show. And he and I were able to meet up yesterday via telephone and catch up on things such as the Tour de France, what happened, what we liked, what he didn't like, and uh, other races, and you know, kind of ro- pro road cycling in general in terms of what's going on with all that. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I give you my good friend, Frank Strack, com on the Pack Floor Podcast. Hey, welcome back once again to the show. <laughs> That's going to be a joke I'm going to talk about here in a second. The founder of Velomonati.com. He's the author of The Rules. Also, um, his most recent offering, which is entitled The Hard Man, Legends of Cycling Gods. And as I said in an earlier introduction, I'm going to joke about that here in a second. He's also a world-class smartass and tongue-in-cheek critic of everything you do on a bike. So I'm going to say this welcome to the second time because my fucking recorder just didn't start working here about 10 minutes ago. Um, please welcome back to the show again. <laughs> <laughs> Great Frank Strack. How are you again, man? I am very well. Shit. Um, and I'm, it's too bad because that was some genius stuff. Everybody's just going to have to take our word for it. Well, it was brilliant. It was, <laughs> it was brilliant. It the was, first time it through. was really fucking good. And so I want to just cut, you know, <laughs> we, we can get through all the, the beginning, the, you know, the fluff of the, of the entire thing where I compliment you on how wonderful of a person you are and how. <laughs> How great it is to have you on the show. You compliment and all this. my hair. Yeah, I did. My hair, I my did. smoky eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we could just jump straight into this, this stuff because I originally, for the for the listeners, had, and I, in fact, teased you on the, on a podcast on one of the episodes that I was doing during the tour because I took a bet from somebody that I couldn't do it every day 
report during the tour. They were oh. right. I couldn't do one because it got so fucking boring during the middle section of it that I just kept, would skip a day or two here. But one of the days I had promised a lot of listeners that I was going to get you on and life got in the way a couple times and we had a couple screw ups, but there was, there was some things that I really wanted to get to you to talk about before we got into new things and what's heading on down the road is here we are in the, in the dead part of the summer where we're bike racing. Well, we do have the Welta and we have some things that I want to ask you about, but, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the tour and how all that went. And, and, and again, if, even if you touch base half as well, you did when I wasn't running the recorder, we're all in for a great treat. Just what you thought of that race and how it all went. I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the, the problem with the tour de France is that it's, uh, it's a hard race to manage, I think for the racers themselves. And, um, I think a, a team like team sky and a rider like Chris Froome, when you come in there with a legitimate, um, chance of winning the race, I think it makes a lot of sense that you end up racing really conservatively. You try to get as big a gap as you can as early as possible. And then you try to hold it and you control it. You, you buy up all the great racers and you try to snuff out any, any interest in attacking and you just put these guys on an assembly line and just burn through them like a, like a staging rocket trying to get <laughs> out into outer space, you know? Um, and, uh, I think that it, it's a super sensible tactic, uh, I think, for the entertainers or for the entertainment value. For, for us watching the race, we want to see fireworks. We want to see, uh, you know, people blowing up and making mistakes and going along and, and uh, taking risks. And um, I think the way that the, that the tour is set up um, just kind of it, it just makes it almost impossible for that to actually be a fun race to watch. Um, and I'm not totally sure what the difference is between the Giro and the tour, but it seems like the, the Giro does a better job of, of having it be interesting. I think maybe those courses are just so difficult that, you know, whether or not they're managing the race, uh, maybe people just sort of falter more often, but, um, the tour de France just seems to be kind of just year after year, it tends to be a snooze fest. Uh, the last time we were going through, we were talking about the fact that this has been going on for ages, right? Especially since probably yeah. the uh, the Indurain era, uh, where he would go and, and just dominate the time trials and, and put so much time into everybody else that the rest of the tour de France was basically just, you know, interesting from stage to stage to see who was going to win, uh, each day. But, um, the overall was kind of just, you know, stopped being interesting. I, I think that's this year, certainly, I think, you know, it seemed like it was going to be really, a really exciting last week. Uh, everybody was super close. I can't remember. I mean, I remember second place was an actual tie. Um, yeah. I can't remember how far back third place was, but it was probably, you know, it was 20 seconds or 15 seconds. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that all had a lot of promise to be exciting, but then when it actually came down to it, um, you know, there, there wasn't actually anything exciting happening. It, it, you know, the, the people trying to make the differences in the time were, were, you know, waiting too long to, to make their attacks. Chris Froome put in, I think, only one attack, which quite honestly yeah. was actually probably the best attack of the race. Oh, God, um, yeah. You know, and uh, except for Aru, I guess, on that, uh, when oh, he took that. the yellow jersey, was a pretty good day, too. But, um, you know, it, it just ended up being uh, kind of these guys were going so hard and so fast, and Froome had teammates until so late in the stage that, uh, you know, those, those days ended up not being very exciting in the end. Um, do you think that turns so out which to... Brings me to my, oh, no, go ahead. Go. Ahead. go. I, I was going to say somebody, I, I read somewhere that, uh, you know, there, there's this idea of, of, of capping team budgets and, um, you know, sort of following the NFL model, which I know very little about. Um, I don't, I don't really follow football. I watched it a little bit when what? the local team in Seattle won the Super Bowl, but um, <laughs> you know, there, I, I don't really, I don't really understand it, but I do understand that they cap budgets to yeah. try to keep a, keep a team from dominating year after year after year. Uh, and I think this article was on Velo News. They were talking about um, whether that model makes sense in cycling. And I, I agree with that group's consensus, which was it doesn't make sense because cycling is so, um, money poor as it is that yeah, you don't really want to go point. prohibiting teams from getting money. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I think what does make a lot of sense is, is capping team sizes. If you can't cap the budget, why not cap the team size that goes into the tour de France? You don't need nine, 
riders on the team, maybe you just need five. Um, you oh, know, I, I know they're already reducing it, but reduce it down far enough that it, that there's really no way that you can control the stage to that extent. Um, and have the favorites be out in the wind a lot more because I figured out at some point, I think Lance Armstrong in, in all of his tours, I think he, you know, he rode on the front, not counting time trials. He rode on the front, like in aggregate, like 30 K or something. Really? <laughs> you know, or yeah. Something yeah. like that. It's, you know, it's, it's, on, it's probably less than a hundred for sure. It's, uh, yeah. it's not very much that these guys actually go in the wind and, and, and do the racing themselves. And you had mentioned uh, before, you know, in our first go through with this, uh, you know, the old styles, the attacking style of a guy like Bernardino, who would, if he was 15 seconds down, he'd go out 80K before the finish um, and and make yeah. this just this glorious effort. Um, I, I think in my recollection, Floyd Landis was the last guy to attempt that style. And we all know, even though he was successful, we all know how that ended up. Um yeah, actually, Andy Schleck did it one year too, in 2010 or something. <clears throat> he, he ended up losing to Cadell Evans, uh, but he went oh, yeah. from a ways out. Uh, that was a Merckian style kind of attack. It was very cool. The only, yeah, I mean, that was that was right before the Schlecks really burned out, but um, yeah, and shit. it wasn't successful. But it was a good attack. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, I think I also asked you, even though, you know, it, I was curious about the fact because it, I, I also think that you having watching pro cycling throughout the season a lot more than I do, um, you got a, a little bit of perspective in terms of um, b- bodies just flying all over the place and the concepts of broken bones, seeing so many broken bones. I had George Mount on during the, during the tour and he had some, some, oh, cool. some interesting thoughts in terms of why these guys have such brittle bones. But um, the crashing, is it something that you see happening throughout the season that much more often, or is it just because there's so much on the line here at this one individual race? I think it's a lot of, I mean, you, you look at a, a crash like Richie Ford, and he just, he just screwed up, right? Um, oh, God. And was... then poor Dan Martin, you know, he was just... Oh, God. Uh, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but um, and they kept showing it over and over oh, and over. Man. You know, it's it's hard to see what what exactly happened, and I'm sure that that somebody wrote about it, and I'm sure that that Ports even talked about it. But it, it almost looked like uh, this has happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to you too. But you come around a corner, and somehow the camber of the road isn't quite right, and you're going kind of fast, and you just find yourself, even though you're steering what you think is the right amount. Yeah. You find yourself sort of drifting out, and um, it just those replays make it look like it was just something like that. Like he, he just, just happened went to be right in a on bad inside, part of the yeah. road, and it just he just couldn't keep it on the road. <laughs> and then it looks like he almost thinks that he's going to make it right for yeah. a little while. It's like, oh, I'm going to make it. Oh God. <laughs> And then it's game over. I was so NBC was making me sick to my stomach. It was like um, the JFK assassination videotape that they kept showing over and over and over. You know, like forward, right. reverse, forward, reverse. Kevin Costner in the movie. For those of you who are that old as I am, you know, reliving that fucking crash over and over again. Um, he, he, I've right. heard you know some theories about you know EPO maybe causing brittle bones. Yeah, I've heard right, some, and I think yeah. Osteo- causing osteoporosis yeah, yeah i've read about that too and i, I was just going to say the same thing you know and i, I don't necessarily want to always be the the big doomsday guy talking about um doping but i think you know these guys break their break big bones the collarbone is a normal bone to break yeah these guys bring so break some really big bones like their femur um but i've read something at some point in my life i read something about how hard it is to break your femur these guys break the femurs a lot and they're going fast and I'm sure there's a lot of force, but it seems like they shouldn't be breaking their femur quite as much as they're breaking their femur. Um, and so you kind of wonder about what's going on. Um, these brittle bones, I also think their diet is probably, you know, they're so focused on um, being so skinny. Um, that can't be, that can't be healthy. A guy like Merrick's was a much, and you know, these were much burlier guys. Um, than what we're seeing today. A, a, a guy like Chris Froome is just a little stick figure. Um, you know, he might as well he might as well be made out of straw as far yeah. as you know, as yeah. far as his bulkiness goes. Yeah. So you've got a team like Sky with the New York Yankees mentality buy, buy all the best and just dominate. Um, you've got a guy like Froome who looks like he's he's strong for the foreseeable future. Um, I don't want to get all gloom and doom and depressing, but are we looking at this type of result very possibly for at least the next year or two? 
Yeah, I th- well, I think so. Unless uh, somebody gets strong real quick, you know. Um, Bardet, what a cool, what a awesome yeah. looking rider he is. He just he looks rad. He's got an awesome position on his bike. He's um, he's he rides beautifully. Um, he's attacking. You know, if he gets a little bit stronger and gets a little bit stronger of a team, yeah. Um, you know, and he had that logo on his top tube, the, you know, whatever it is, whenever you get the chance, take it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess my only argument there would be, um, if you're waiting for your chance, you're already in the wrong mentality. These, you know, people who win races make their chances. Um, so I would say if he changes his attitude a little bit, gets a stronger team and gets just a little bit stronger himself, you know, you could see somebody unseating Froome. Froome looked, looked weaker this year for sure than, uh, than his other years. Uh, we know that he's fallen off his bike and and broken things um, and not been able to finish. So Froome, I think, is is definitely not a foregone conclusion. Um, although I'm, it's likely that he'll win five tours and maybe more. There was a post on Villaminati recently about how Garrett Thomas should have been the unofficial the rightful, winner. rightful winner of this of the race <laughs> what a load of shit <laughs> <laughs> okay so <laughs> there is disagreement amongst the ranks richie richie port was obviously the rightful winner of the tour <laughs> <laughs> oh shit so here we now go yeah. into this yeah. oh, actually one last question on the sagan uh cavendish issue oh you know was he completely you know, fucked it over? To me like, I, I don't think, and, and I thought so right from the, from the first moment that I saw the crash. It didn't look to me like Sagan did anything untoward, oh. right? I mean, these guys are okay. are just racing for the line, and um, <clears throat> you know that elbow came out. But uh, I think if if you've ever your your podcast is called the Pack Filler Cup Podcast, so you've <laughs> ridden in the bunch. Yeah, you know we're we're taught to to lean into movement behind you, right? Yeah. Um, when there's when somebody's riding into you, you ride back into them to keep yourself upright. Yeah. Um, and so th- this is these are just the normal movements that you make on a bike. The elbow came out a lot, um, but I don't think that, that it was him putting him into the barrier. And I think there's been enough research done in looking at the photos and especially the photos from the front. Cavendish's foot was coming out of the pedal before um, his elbow came out, and it just looked like. Cavendish was crashing anyway. Um, sucks. Totally sucks yeah. for Cavendish. And, uh, you know. Well, I guess. But I, I don't think there was my whole question, crazy happening there. My whole question surrounding that is, is here you've got supposedly, you know, the best officials in the world looking at this. They know, at least from their jobs, what sprinting is like, what when somebody leans into you is like, yet they still make a call like that. Um, it, you know. I don't think those. I don't think the officials are racers uh, or former racers at all. I think I, I could be wrong on this, so don't don't take my word for it. But I, I'm given to understand that these guys that there's no requirement that they're racers, um, and I think this judge that threw Cavendish out is not was not a racer. Threw Sagan out. Yeah. It's, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. What I no, said, Cavendish. You yeah, said so, Cavendish. Yeah. 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 It's okay. I just, it, I just, I don't understand how you can reach. I don't say you have to be a, right, a racer. You don't have to be in that level, but how you can reach a specific level of status that would decide upon, um, you know, a team like Bora Hansgro, you know, with millions of dollars at stake, how you can make a decision like that and how you do, you wouldn't have the expertise to understand what is going on. I mean, I heard from people all over social media immediately during the sprint that, majority of the ones who I respect their opinions um, were all shouting, no, this, this was, this was, it sucks that it happened, but this isn't, this isn't a cause to kick somebody out of the race. Yeah. I think that was universally agreed to agreed on. And I think, um, you know, maybe, maybe you relegate them for the day, right? Maybe, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the customary worst, um, worst offense sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it was really extreme. And you look at it actually, from, you know, I, I do think the the officials, they might have just been really incompetent, and not necessarily, um, you know, deliberately trying to, to to screw this guy over because they screwed themselves over. I think the, yeah. the, the tour did a lot worse not having Sagan in it. So they, they threw this guy out uh, without understanding the impact of what that was going to have on the race overall. Um but you also have to consider that these races, these sprints are getting dangerous. 
people are falling off a lot. There's a lot of publicity around crashes. Um, and so, you know, these guys probably had the best intention of trying to keep it safe and, and putting in a, a, a strong punishment against somebody who did something seemingly dangerous. Um, you know, it was probably done with the intention to discourage that kind of behavior moving forward. Not understanding that it's a sprinter's mentality is not really a contemplative one. It's more yeah. a reactive one. Well, you, I don't know if you know my theory. It did, kicking Sagan out, did actually put a Frenchman into green. Uh-huh. That's, yep. The French are oh, picking just their for own the right. Day, yeah. Oh yeah, no, I'm an X Files kind of guy. It's it's all yeah, a big conspiracy. Right. <laughs> Smoking man is in the back of the van going get get kick him out or whatever. That was a shitty French accent. <laughs> Fuck, but yeah. so well, it's it's over. Um, we have more races to look forward to. I did notice upon my research for today's show, looking on on the p- website that. There is very little on uh, Velominati.com about the Colorado Classic that started today. Um, am I putting you <laughs> on the spot by saying uh, what's going on, or are you guys just like, no, it doesn't count? It doesn't count. It's, the Twitter <laughs> on under is not on there either, right? Um, and what's, maybe it'll count eventually, but it's, it's um, you know, I, I guess it just doesn't really have the – Willow and I were all, we're all about the heritage of the sport, right? Okay. Um, and while I'm thrilled that the Tour of California is going on and uh, every year and Tour of Colorado now, and um, those are great races, and I'm super psyched that it's get, becoming popular in the United States. Um, it doesn't mean I don't care about the race, uh, but as far as doing our Willow Super Prestige, um, you know, the Super Prestige was a, a prominent. Um, oh, yeah season long competition, uh, back in the eighties, uh, and a little bit in the, in the nineties, um, precursor to the world. You know, Cup. So it, yeah, exactly. Pre- precursor yeah. to the world cup before they fucked it up. Um, <laughs> you know, it, so it, it had everything to do with these old classic races. And so the, the Bolognati super prestige is supposed to be, um, kind of focused on, you know, the, the races with, with Providence and, um, it, uh, it just doesn't have that yet. So, Maybe in a, how long has the tour of California been going on now? Oh, I, you know, maybe I, I five, six, seven years. Maybe I'm, I'm, that's a guess. Yeah, so maybe if it's been around for, you know, for ten <laughs> or fifteen years, maybe maybe we'll put it in there. But tour of California, tour of Colorado's got a ways to go. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't even necessarily talking about being in the Super Prestige. I was more of the fact that it's it, it gets you know not to pick on you or put you under the spotlight, but you guys don't even have a post on it and stuff like that so i mean i'm okay with it it's a it's yeah. a four-day category two race um and i i understand why you guys are going yeah i mean it's a it's a race but you know so is the tour of utah and that's like watching you know an insurance seminar <laughs> so, i don't know i've always that's hated what I'll, the tour what I'll of utah say from now on, okay like a, watching an insurance seminar it is I like it. I don't know why I've I've never liked the tour of Utah. It's always bored the shit out of me, and and so you know. Have you been to Utah? <laughs> Great point. <laughs> Great point. <Yeah. laughs> I could make a polygamy joke in there somewhere, but I just don't know where it is. So. Yeah. How, how about I've the? That's so boring. They need more than one wife to keep entertained. <laughs> I'm in such hell. I'll make it worse by getting another wife. <laughs> <laughs> I could say that because my wife was she's not home yet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm in deep shit. No. <laughs> hey, um, how about the Vuelta itself? I know that starts next week, and um, I, I yep. what do you what do you think on on what's going on there? Any anything that any surprises we're expecting? Again, like you say, I find it interesting that the Giro was such an exciting three weeks of racing up and down, mm-hmm. um, you know, bathroom stops, uh, all kinds of <laughs> shit flying literally. Yeah. And, um, right. And the Vuelta seems to bring out some of that too. And are, do you think we're going to see some more of those fireworks that we were hoping for in, in France? So I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep shitting on the Vuelta because the you Vuelta are. is, you know, because I shit on it, I think it continues to prove me wrong by being a great race. <laughs> and so I'm not, I'm not going to come out of my corner here and start calling it a good race because it'll turn into a shit race. <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's, it seems like it's the grudge, grudge match of the season, right? It's like, 
Yeah. Everybody that fucked up in the tour of Italy and the, everybody who fucked up at the tour, um, or got thrown out of it or got, you know, crashed out or whatever. Um, you know, it seems like they all come back and have a rematch and, um, If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's, yeah. it's, it's a better race for it. There's Spain is, you know, some of those stages are, you know, like straight freeways for 120 K. It's like the most boring racing you could possibly imagine. Um, some of those transition stages, but then their climbs are like some of the, some of the steepest, yeah, they're most brutal climbs. It's late enough in the season that there's some really horrendous weather oftentimes. So, um, yeah, you know, let's, <laughs> let's bring it on. Yeah. Everything, everything I'm seeing talking about it is bringing up the fact that it's Contador's last time pinning a number on his Jersey. Uh, Pedro Delgado said recently his retirement is part of the end of the quote, end of uh sorry of spain's quote golden age of cycling end quote um he's gonna start with number one on his jersey um thoughts on contador on his retirement on his last vuelta you know it's one of those things where contador is one of those riders that i've had such a hard time um kind of coming to grips with how I feel about him because I hated him as much as I hate, uh, hated Armstrong. And as much as I, right now, I I guess I don't, I don't hate Chris Froome. I just, I just can't palette the style of racing. You know, there's, there's, uh, I can't palette how he looks, but as a, as a person, (laughs) he seems to be a pretty stand up guy. He he doesn't seem like he's an asshole in any way, but, um, you know, I, I, I can never stand these guys that are dominant and I hate to say it, but I probably, if I was, you know, if I was alive during the Merrick's era, I probably would have hated Eddie Merrick's because uh, it's that type of writer that I, I, I just can't get on board with him because I, I'm always rooting for the underdog. I'm, I'm always rooting for the Roman Bardet, the Jan Ulrich, you know, the, the guys that just might, just might do it. Um, And uh, so I guess Contador, I hated him. Um, especially when it seemed seemed so obvious that he's doping, you know, he, he was just, you know, he's the fastest climber in the world, and the and he, you know, he beat Consolara in the time trial. It's like, yeah. <laughs> are you kidding me? Yeah. Wait, but, uh, no, no, that was the Spanish steak. It was his beef that he was eating. <laughs> Remember, that's right. The, it wasn't his fault. Yeah, it the was the beef. Butyrol, yeah, the beef, the beef that <laughs> that looks like. You know, if Arnold Schwarzenegger was a cow, <laughs> fucking move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. He's like, this is, a, this is a mighty juicy steak, isn't yeah. it, guys? <laughs> Jesus, it's tough to get into. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but but I've got to say, I've I've ever since he's been losing, um, you, you can't help but admire the guy for his fighting spirit. You know, in that time yeah. he won the Vuelta with that totally audacious um, attack you know, on a, on a transition stage, um, you know, there's, you've, you've, and the way actually, honestly, the way he stood up psychologically against Lance Armstrong when they were on the same tra- team that, that one year yeah, oh at shit, Astana, yeah. um, you know, you got to admire somebody who's, 
that headstrong. Um, so Colador, yeah, I, you know, I think he's added a lot to the sport, especially in his second half of his career, where he's been, um, you know, he's been a, a true champion in the sense that he's always, you know, raced with panache and done the best he could, even when he wasn't when he wasn't winning and he wasn't, you know, uh, the greatest guy in the in the peloton. So um, I think we need more riders like that in general in the peloton. I think uh, one of the things that I admire most about racers are people like Richie Port and, and Chris Froome who are who are competitors but are actually best friends. Yeah. Um, and I think good sportsmanship has a lot to do with mutual respect and being beaten by a, a, a racer who um, and beating a racer who you know is is a worthy adversary. And so I think um, I think we need more of that mentality. We need more people that are racing um with respect for the others around them and it seems to me like contador is one of those guys for sure so but i I guess i would have to disagree with with delgado though um in terms of the end of spanish cycling because i think sure he's he's not won very many grand tours but uh valverde is still alive and kicking and he's still racing like a motherfucker and, and uh as far as i can tell he hasn't retired so um that guy, he's another guy that I, you know, I've, I've hated him. And the fact is I, I, I kind of still hate him now, but Thank you. he yeah. looks so fucking good on the bike Yeah, he's sca- that it's hard for me to hate him while he's racing, you know, like in the race, when I see him go, it's like, damn, that yeah. looks good. He scares the but shit out of me. But then as soon as the race is over, I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. He, <laughs> he scares the shit out of me because I just, I just want to, I, he's been so strong and so consistently up there for so many years. Part of me is just going, oh, fuck, no, 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 please, 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 please be the guy I want you to be. And so I've never really <laughs> been a fan of him just because I'm scared of that. Um, uh, so anyway. Right. Um, other, yeah, he's the. Uh, but but don't yeah he was I think he was embroiled in the he was suspended and everything he was embroiled in yeah. the whole uh, the whole uh, Fuentes case of course so he yeah. he isn't the guy that you thought he was but we hope that he is but <laughs> yeah yeah he, um, it's interesting though um, you know the some of those guys including Ulrich Ulrich's blood came back from that thing and there was there was no manipulation to his blood so he wasn't taking EPO or anything like that um, but you know it's interesting that Fuentes thing. Um, obviously it was, you know, they had whatever that, that blood tank was called the Siberia that could, uh, <laughs> you know, turn you into a superhuman, but, um, the, uh, it sounds like something from the know, Marvel universe What's going on there, yeah. you know, cause some of the, some of that blood, it was obviously just for reinfusion, but they weren't actually manipulating it. Oh, okay. Um, but it's still blood doping, still cheating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit. But it, Ulrich was, uh, apparently I read this, this book, the wheelman uh, a while ago written by a journalist in the wall street journal. Um, and he, uh, he claimed that, um, Ulrich actually got so scared during the Festina affair, uh, that he threw out all his EPO during that tour de France and then actually never blood doped. I'm sure he took all sorts of other drugs, but he never blood doped or took EPO again. Um, until 2003 when he got so fucking sick and tired of Armstrong kicking his ass, <laughs> knowing full well that Armstrong, of course, was doped to the gills, yeah. that he finally, he got he jumped back into the doping pool in 2003 when he almost won the Tour de France for a second time. Um, but he, So he raced all those years from 98 to 2003. He, he raced, quote-unquote, clean, yeah. uh, according to the wheelman, which is, I think, an interesting fact um, because everybody just assumes he's... he's you know, one of the dirtiest guys around and, you know, for all we know he was, but, um, if he was racing clean against Armstrong and, and getting second, second place in the Tour de France, that's, that's yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. What you, okay. You mentioned the wheelman and this is a perfect segue moment here too, to talk about, uh, the Hardman. Um, oh yeah. I, I, I mean this as a true, uh, show of affection. I, I'm calling it a cycling book with a porno title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if if my wife came in and saw a book that said The Hard Man, or if I saw it on her nightstand, I'd probably what the fuck, honey? What's what's the, oh oh? It's a cycling hard man. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's just a it's just a cover on the book. Yeah, right? yeah. It's a picture of a 
cyclist to cover up the fact that she's reading uh yeah, no, Lucy Wallace or whatever. If, if yeah. it was hard man, then we'd have a problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> issue there. So, uh, t- talk to me about the inspiration of the book, uh, what the concept's about, and and what brought you to put it together. Yeah. So uh, the rules, actually, when we when we wrote the rules, <clears throat> um, part of my original proposal, actually, to the publisher was a series of books, and I wanted to call the rules. Um, my proposed title for the rules was La Viva Luminatis Part One, The Rules. Ah. Um, and uh, the rules is broken up into five sections. Um, the Esteet, the Disciple. Let me see if I get these right. The Deceit, <laughs> the, uh, the, Esteet, the, Esteet, the Disciple, the Bike, the Rides, and the Hard Men. Okay. Um, and uh, the idea was actually that we would then, as soon as we finished the rules, we would write five more books Um that would basically expand each one of those sections. And okay. Who knows how far we get in that project and that long-term vision. But um, the, uh, the Hardman, I guess, is the first, the first expansion um, of the rules. And so it focuses purely on that fifth chapter in the rules um, and goes into much more depth, obviously. Um, and so we picked, uh, I can't remember how many riders are in there, 35 or 40, something like that, uh, of our, of, of the, of the rides really, um, that had the sort of the biggest impact on us as, as budding cyclists growing up and, um, you know, and sort of the, the, the rides that stuck in our mind the most as inspiration. And so some of those are, you know, riders that we witnessed racing. Gotcha. Um, and then the ones that we read about, you know, as we're sort of diving deeper into the sport and, and, uh, becoming more passionate about it. Um, and then just, uh, you know, a couple obviously that were super recent, a couple that were much older and then just some really interesting things that, you know, we've learned along the way for, for, you know, kind of through random reasons like yeah. this, uh, we put this, uh, thing in there about any Dun- done and dairy, um, <laughs> who rode her bike around the world, um, oh, wow. you know, with the assistance of ferries and ships and boats and things like that. But this, this woman and, and really what the bicycle, the role the bicycle played in the women's rights movement, um, you know, not least that that's when women started wearing pants and, yeah. um, you know, they, they were, it was kind of, she took the, she took a bet actually that she couldn't match uh, somebody allegedly somebody in a, some club somewhere said this man has just ridden his bike around the world. And I'm sure that no woman could ever do that. And this other guy said, well, I'm sure a woman could do it. And Lennon, any Lennon said, fuck yeah, I can do it. And, <laughs> and did it. So it was kind of, you know, kind of a highly pub- publicized sort of, uh, event that this woman went through and she, she did it alone. Basically, you know, it's really impressive. And she, rounded up her own sponsors and, uh, you know, rode around with us, you know, with a sandwich board on her, on wow. her bike to, uh, you know, to, to advertise the various people that she got to give her money. So it was, uh, you know, it's little things like that. So it's a lot of racing, but there's some side stories like that in there as well. Okay. Well, that, that answers like two of my questions was, I was going to ask you to provide some examples of, of, of what would, what type of a person or an effort would equal that category. I think I saw in a blurb somewhere, you said something about Stephen Roche, you know, in his 87, um, you know, that effort that basically put him into a ambulance. Um, and I was I'm not like, for a woman. I'm not ready for a woman just yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and, and then I was going to ask also if it was just, you know, gender specific and then you, you do that. I noticed I, that, that Beryl Burton's probably in there somewhere and things like that. Yep. For sure. Um, how, yep. how were you guys able to sit, just stop at 40? Because I can sit here and you think know, and of 40 riders who I went, holy shit, badass, you know, yeah. and, and just go over and over and over. And the next thing I know, I'd, I wouldn't have slept for two days. Yeah, and that was one of the things that we came, we came to that conclusion really quickly. You know, you have to write a book that's a certain length and there's no way you could ever do it. And so that's why we focused sort of on this, on this scope, which was, you know, and, and just like everything else that Philomenati is, it's really at our, at our whim. Um, <laughs> yeah, fuck you. you know, yeah, but, if you want to add yeah, some, you know, write your own book. Of, we do what we want, honestly. <laughs> We're the guns and roses of, <laughs> of, of writing. Um, 
but uh you know it's just like you just write about what you're inspired by and that's what we always do and um we i could probably you know we could probably come up with a half a dozen sequels yeah um you know and and to be fair, some of our favorite writers, some of my personal favorite writers aren't in the book. Greg Lamont's not in the book. Laurent Fillon's not in the book. Tom Bonin is not in the book. You know, so oh, yeah. um, the list of people that are omitted from this, Andrea Taffy today, actually a friend of mine, sent me a picture of <laughs> Taffy holding the book saying, Andrea is not very excited about the fact that he didn't make your book. Oh, so, um, you know, so these guys are, uh, you know, there's, uh, they're not wrong to, no. to, you know, actually, I think Taffy might, Taffy's in it indirectly. <laughs> Wasn't he one of the three guys with, uh, wait, who with was, yeah, who were the three that, guys in, in that Perry Roubaix? Museo, Taffy, yeah, that Roubaix, yeah. that, cause that story's in there. Oh, okay. okay. In any case, um, you know, in any case that's, uh, and you know, Museo doesn't have his own, uh, his own chapter either. So, you know, there, there are a lot of wow. people in there that, um, that certainly deserve to be in there, but I guess we picked them based on what we felt like writing about at the time and um does style have anything know, does yeah. style have anything could, to do with it oh style of course i mean yeah. if, if chris room chris room will never make that book just because he <laughs> looks horrible on a bicycle <laughs> there's just no question about it yeah um you know but uh yeah style of course class and you know how you look on a bike how you raced um how inspiring it was all you know all those things are are intangibles that are very important to us. And, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah. you could certainly accuse us of being wrong and you'd be right because, um, you know, there's no science to this. There's yeah. it's just, uh, I can just only, what we're interested in. I can only assume Sean Kelly's in the book at some point in time, but Sean Kelly, Sean, had, Sean Kelly's in it twice. Yeah. Sean He's Kelly had the of, shittiest position on his bike. He looks like his, he looked like his saddle was about an inch too low. You know, you, I, 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 I agree with you 100. percent He he really really looked like he was riding a bike that didn't yeah, fit him. It's too small, um, yeah. But boy, it worked. And uh, it worked for him though. It's yeah. uh, but he also uh, I had dinner with him actually um, in London last year. It was uh, <laughs> it was basically just the two of us. There were three <laughs> other guys there, but um, bet you had to carry the conversation. Nobody else was talking to him. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I was sitting across the table from him, and it was. A, <laughs> Two of his agents, so it's not like they have anything to say. Yeah, and a guy from Ruler Magazine. Um, you know, so it was basically Sean and I talking, and uh, I I never asked him about his position on the bike, but I did ask him about the the rumors that his uh, that he got a fresh Vitas frame for every race. Oh yeah, um, and he and he got a real wry look on his face, and he said, "Well, you know, the bikes were always treating me well." <laughs> so, I don't know what that means exactly. I also yeah. asked him about his uh that Brancali helmet that he um, oh, yeah. that he wore in Milan San Remo. Yeah. And uh with that same smile on his face he said, You know, I was just thinking about my safety. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. the the and, and specifically when I asked him I said, Rumor is that you got a hefty paycheck for riding yeah, that race. Yeah. In that helmet, and he said, "You know, I was just thinking about my safety." Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, yeah right. That and you wanted and, to look uh, like you were an extra from a Nintendo game, right? Exactly. Yeah. And the duct tape on the shoes—that that mystery is solved too. Um, you oh, know that shit. picture of uh, of, of yeah. the duct tape wrapped around his shoes at yeah. uh, at uh, uh, kind of what, uh, Riege between Liege, um, and that's just basically just to re- reduce the friction on the uh, on the toe strap. See, you're you're killing me. Wouldn't hurt as much. I, I had Sean on a god of, about a year ago, and I I should have asked you for all these good questions to throw at him too, because <laughs> these are the things. Instead of me, I think I was uh, I was kind of like that Chris uh, Chris Farley. You know, remember when you won that race? That was cool. <laughs> yeah. I think that was yeah, pretty much is. the entire fucking interview. But now I'm you know you're thinking about hey, tell me about the duct tape. Tell me about the mushroom cap. <laughs> Shit, you're you're a lot smarter than I am. Um, so for, actually this is a question completely out of nowhere because I've just died dying to know how do you watch the races? How do you watch the tours? Per- perfect time actually, since we're talking about Sean, because Sean does the, the, the commentary on, not on the American broadcast, but, um, I, I have to admit my, 
my patience with the great Phil Liggett is wearing thin and I'm trying to find a way to watch cycling anymore. Um, and, and there's also the races that just don't end up on broadcast TV here in the States. Mm-hmm. What, how, do, mm-hmm. do you, how, what legal methods do you go through to watch races? <laughs> uh, it's the, it's the same as, as everyone just steep, steep hill where you I do. can, okay. where I can, you know, where I can find one that works and it's very frustrating. And I can't tell you how many times it freezes like with a K to go or, or, or worse yet, yeah, 50 yards to go, yeah. right. Or 50 meters to go. Okay. Um, that's the worst. Um, so, but, but, uh, Dutch is, Dutch is my first language. So I, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm prone to the, to the Flemish, uh, channels when I can, and especially during the classics, those guys are the best commentators ever. Like these, these guys know these roads so incredibly well. It's like the bunch will come up to a roundabout and one guy goes around the roundabout on the other side from everybody else. And he's like, and the commentator's like, Oh no, there's a pothole on that side. He's going to have to bunny hop it and he'll lose 12 meters and he's going to lose the race. <laughs> it's like, these guys are uh, these guys are seriously seriously uh, fanatic about this whole thing. Um, and then uh, I did the uh, NBC Sports Gold you thing did. for the Tour de France. Yeah. Okay. Um, which um, was actually was fantastic, and it's uh, that service has become better and better. And I use it on uh, I use it on um, Apple TV. Yeah. Uh, and on my iPad, iPad and so forth. And, because I'm on the West Coast, I, I don't actually, for the Tour de France, I actually don't watch it live. I don't get up um, I can't to force myself either. to watch it because yeah. I, I just watch the replay a little bit later. Um, and this year, I was surprised uh, that Phil and Paul were not on the replay commentary. It was uh, Robbie McEwen and um, this other uh, oh, Australian guy whose name okay. I forget. But um, those guys were awesome. They were totally awesome, and I will never say anything bad about Phil Leggett or Paul Sherwin. Uh, those guys are the voices of cycling, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. They're, um, you know, the first I Tour think... de France video cassette that I had, you know, had Paul Sherwin on it already, and it was 1986, and, um, you know, I'll... I'll those guys are cycling to me um, yeah. and they might be getting a little long in the tooth and they might not be quite as uh, spry as they used to be, but um, I owe them a debt of gratitude. But at the same time, I've got to say that Robbie McEwen was, was really good as a commentator. Um, I was never a fan of his as a cyclist, but um, he really, really brought interesting perspective. And um, as far as I'm concerned, I would, I would, I would listen to him commentate any race I ever watched. Wow. Okay. I, I, there was a time in the TV coverage where something happened and they lost their feed and they went to that feed with, with Robbie McEwen. And now I understand what that feed was coming from. I didn't know if that was just, Oh shit, let's plug into Australia's feed and see what's going on over there. But, uh, <laughs> but no, it, it, it was, it was completely, it had a different visual look to it. And, and I thought, shit, something happened, something screwed up. And then they came back to it about 20 minutes later during the stage. But, uh, so that's that's good to know where that is. So I'm glad to know that you don't have any insights or you know secret behind the scenes ways to get to you know to some sort of channel that the rest of us can't get because it's frustrating as shit sometimes. But what do you do? Hey, um, you you talked about your your racing career and stuff like that. Um, you do you strap pin on numbers much anymore? Uh, cyclocross. You do okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I've I've uh at some point came to the conclusion that racing was very expensive from a from an equipment standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> so I, <laughs> and it wasn't very worthwhile from a from a result standpoint. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that, uh, that, that it became something that I uh, decommissioned from my life. Yeah. Well, no, I'm the, I'm exactly the same way. I found myself <laughs> with the same guys, same start line, same results, same races <laughs> every year. And it was like, God, this is costing a shit ton of money. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've kind of, now I'm just trying to pick and choose events, you know, that might be something worth training for. Um, right. And I read on a post of your, your root found finding concepts that you're putting together. And, and have you been doing more of the gravel stuff recently? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of that still. Um, and it's, it's 
super, super fun. Um, there's some racing that I do on gravel as well occasionally. Um, and I guess when I say strap a number on, I, I guess I mean a bona fide race. I don't mean a citizen's race or no. a yeah. sport Eve or something, but, um, you know, so the, yeah, I do some gravel racing. Um, there's a great one called the heck of the North in Northern Minnesota, actually, which is half a world away, but it's, um, it's a fantastic, uh, event and it's trying to, it's gravel separated by sections of off-road trails so be that single track or oh wow um uh you know uh snow machine trails snowmobile trails um so it's like four-wheeler trails sort of things uh and so you have like it's it's a lot like Paris-Roubaix because the the bunch rides you know pretty compact on the gravel roads which are the easy roads in this race (laughs) and then um you know it's a mad dash for position to get into these off-road sectors and they're overgrown and they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, raspberry bushes and blackberry bushes that are oh, tearing shit. you apart. And, uh, <laughs> you know, tall, tall, this Minnesota has this tall razor, like grass that will slice you to pieces. And so we're racing through these sections and, you know, if you wander <laughs> off the main, you know, dirt track, you're riding in this, in this garbage. And so it's, uh, it's, it's super fun. It's super competitive. The, you know, the, the top guys are, are racing it really, really tight. Um, and then the rest of it, people are having picnics and riding fat bikes and, you know, having okay. a total blast. So oh, wow. it's a, it's a really, really, in fact, I think Marco, um, you know, keeper Marco, yeah. I think he rode it with a, with a trailer and a keg one year <laughs> because he was out of shape and he decided to, to be a man of the people. And he rode as a beer supply cyclist. That, that's, so. a, that's a person for others. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that. Hey, is there another, <laughs> is there another hour uh, attempt coming soon? For those the listeners who, 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 did, who were there privy for that information when I drove four and a half hours to uh, commentate <laughs> for a, quit. <laughs> an hour record that took about 30-some minutes. Well, the, it was, dude, your rear wheel was sliding was in those corners. 52 minutes, yeah. Was it? Is that you yeah, went that long? That Did you make it yeah. 52 minutes? Shit, I'm sorry. But was, the weather it was... It was 52 minutes, but just, it, I would have been happy if it was 30 minutes because then it would have just been like, yeah. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Great point. It's like, son of a bitch, I'm so close. Oh, man. is Are you, you going to put yourself through that? nightmare again oh, for sure um yeah my my condition has been in question uh for a variety <laughs> of reasons this year uh but it's uh if i if i get into decent shape here um i've been practicing a lot of road safety lately let's put it that way um <laughs> but if i uh if <laughs> if i get into decent shape here which is not inconceivable uh before the end of before the rainy season starts Oh wow! Yeah, I'll reserve the track and 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 go for another hour. Um, otherwise, I'll I'll plan on doing it again for Festa and Perfette okay. next year. At the worst case scenario. Yeah, that's seventeenth, right? June. Isn't that June seventeenth. Yeah, June seventeenth. Yeah. Eddie Merckx's birthday. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, so before we before we finish off, um, book when, where, why does the UK get it first? Um, all those types of things. Yeah, publishing companies, man, they're they're weird. So uh, we're super popular in the UK, and that's why. That totally sounds um, like you're talking about your why band. It starts there. <laughs> What's that? It sounds like you're talking about your band, dude. We're really cool in Japan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're Check out our tap. demo. We're Spinal Tap yeah. in the UK, <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and so the the publishers there are for both co- for both books that we that we wrote those were the guys that uh that picked us up first yeah. and um you know the, the other publishers basically want to see normally they want to see how a book does okay. in a, in the in its first market before they pick it up and sell it in their own market and that's what happened with the rules that was out in the UK for a year or maybe a little more um before it was picked up um a little less than it actually was picked up in April. It was released in June and picked up in April. So almost a year it was, it was on the market before the U S picked it up this time. Uh, basically it was a, a publisher picked it up in the United States. Um, as soon as we finished the book, Oh wow! Okay. but that didn't give them quite enough time to release it in the U S at the same time, because they have to change all the spelling and punctuation and, you know, uh, they want to make some other changes to it, um, or, you know, to specialize it for the market. And so, 
Uh, November is when it comes out in the United States, and we actually sold publishing rights to the Netherlands and to Germany. Um, and the rules actually now are also published in Dutch and German. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, it's cool. It's it's uh, it's finding its way around to different countries, which is totally insane to me because, <laughs> as I think you know, you know, we started this whole thing on a whim, and the fact that we wrote a book in the first place is is outrageous. And, yeah. Uh, to, to, to do two books is even more outrageous and to have it be published in different countries is, you know, another order of magnitude outrageous. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really, really fun. It's a magical time we live in. <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> so is there a recommended method you, re- you, you say people go get it? Do you, do you lean towards the big Amazons or do you, is there going to be another method in which people can pick it up? You know, we don't uh, actually, you know, unless you're writing Harry Potter, you don't make money writing a book. So <laughs> I don't care. Just just figure yeah. out how to buy it. But okay. it's, it is, it's worth mentioning that, um, you know, the, the author's um, uh, royalty goes down based on the volume of books that the, uh, that the, that the retailer buys from that publisher. So, Obviously, a company like Amazon buys in absolutely enormous volumes of these books from the the publisher that owns gotcha. all these different publishing houses. And so, Amazon, you know, you it's it's actually it's cheaper for me. It's easy, Amazon is so much easier to order from than my own publisher that I actually my own copies I buy off Amazon because <laughs> they're so close to the price that I would pay yeah. for the books through my publisher that. It's I, and then I get them the next day without having to pay for shipping. So it's, uh, yeah. Needless to say, the royalties that come through Amazon sales are next to nothing. But it's it's it doesn't matter. It's uh, like I say, I buy my own copies. Through Amazon yeah, I was just there were several things in there I wanted to comment on. Number one, you had to buy your own fucking book. That that that's that's pulling back the curtains, ladies and gentlemen, to show what you know what's going on behind the scenes. And number two, that you you completely tongue in cheek talked about how much money we're all making at this because I'm rolling in the cash here in this podcast. Oh, business. totally. It is yep. it is a yep. cash cow. An Arnold. Sw- it is a Spanish cash cow. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit. Well, um, again, man, thank you for not only, uh, do it for the love. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, thank you for, uh, not only coming on the show again, but, um, and doing this show twice because we got 10 minutes into the first attempt and it was fucked up, <laughs> but, uh, thanks. Thanks for coming on, man. And I know that the, that everybody loves to hear, hear your thoughts and hear it coming on and let me know when you're doing that hour record, I'll come up and talk about you. Oh, absolutely. We'll wouldn't miss it for the world and uh, look forward to seeing you again. Right on. Thanks, buddy. All right. Take it easy. And there you have it. Frank Strzok is a great great guy to have on the show, and um, you'll probably hear him again on this show more times in the future. So there I, I wrapped up another episode of the show. My wife is texting me. I actually have my phone in my pocket right now, and it is vibrating like crazy. And if, I don't know about you guys. I still can't hide that sensation. It still scares the shit out of me. And so she's doing it every – I think she wants to change the colors I'm painting the house. I'm spending the gl- gl- glory days of summer outside reconcreting my patio and painting my house. It's a glory, glorious life. <sighs> shit. You guys keep uh, subscribing to the podcast. Keep sending your comments. Give us a rating on iTunes. All those wonderful things. If you want to contact me or anybody in regards to the podcast, Patrick at PackFiller.com. Go straight to me. Or you can do Instagram, Twitter, all that shit. And I got a big surprise. I, I'm not going to go go straight on and tell you guys what it was because, as you guys know, my surprises usually tend to fall flat. So, got a working on a on a pretty fun project and a, a fun surprise here in the near future. Stay tuned. Hopefully, we'll know here in about a week if it's going to actually come together. How's that for a teaser? All I need to do is end it with a sentence, a very short two word like Donald Trump tweet. Very very exciting. Shit, hopefully we all don't all blow up by the next podcast. Take care, you guys.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.